Yeah, actually. I had several friends in the Marines too who were strangely in punk band. And I was like, this is bizarre. What are the chances? It turns out pretty high. It's not some nihilistic approach to life. It's usually some sort of misfit kid thing happening. And there's some sort of chaos present in your life, right? And you go into punk music to put order into that chaos. There's a punk quality to the Marine way of life, actually. It's a lot of people that came from these backgrounds and you put them together and that's a pretty fierce group. Is that much of a, that's not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force, and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post 9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian. And that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 68 features United States Marine Corps veteran Brendan Rooney, the co-founder and CEO of The Podco, a podcast platform which leads the cultural phenomenon of nostalgic rewatchable content with a focus on vulnerability and accountability. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. Right. We are live. Good morning, Brendan Rooney. Welcome to Veteran Made. Morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Appreciate you joining. Um, so for, for those who, who might not know who you are, if you could just give us a, a brief primer on um, who you are and what you're doing now and when and where you served, and then uh, and then we'll, we'll jump into some questions. Yeah, I'm, um, I own a podcast company called Podco. That's primarily sort of a nostalgia, celebrity-focused um podcast company really we're a we're a simulcast video and social media forward company so we kind of put our primary focus there um and i served in the marines from 01 to 05 i was a motor t bubba briefed in overseas came back not that interesting of a story um but of course the building blocks and foundation for for entrepreneurship definitely came from my time in the marine corps yeah absolutely were you um 2001 was that pre 911 or post 911 post so i actually I actually went to the recruiter's office the day after 9-11. I was in New York when it happened. Uh, and it just sort of, you know, sparked something in me to, to go do something bigger than me. You know, give, yeah. give something of myself. And so, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, very cool. So, all right. So, I mean, jumping right into the transition out. I mean, I'm, I'm curious um, what, so you served with, an interest in, like you said, doing something bigger than yourself and, and you experienced 9-11 in, in, you know, fairly close proximity. What, um, was it a, a decision for you? Like, I'm going to go do four years, do my part, serve, get out and, and, and go to college and like do the things I want to do. Or, or was it, what was your transition out? Like, what was that decision process? Not that simple. <laughs> it was, so I was, um, I was a heavy partier <laughs> in those days and, uh, I was a singer in a punk band and I, you know, I left to start a new, I left California, went to start a new band in New York and, and life was just chaos. Right. And, um, the plan, the goal was initially go to go to college, but I was getting wrapped up in a, in a whole bunch of nonsense. And, um, you know, the Marine Corps kind of strangely sort of saved my life, you know, for, it, it could have gone down a very different path. Uh, and so, you know, this, this happened, the whole country, uh, was shaken by nine 11, you know, I don't know how old you were at the time, but like, you know, people were, there was a togetherness that was palpable, you know? And so f immediately, immediately. And so for me, it was like, I can't even, some sort of calling, you know, something just like, I need to do something. I don't know what it is, but I need to do something. And my story about joining, I could get into this real quick little anecdote is, is so, it's like the perfect pitch that any recruiter could ever have. Like I go to all the branches, they say the kinds of things they're going to offer, the bonuses. I mean, obviously, everybody's very confused this time. But they're like, we're offering these bonuses and those bonuses. And the last one I go to is, you know, the Marine Corps, there's a gunny outside in his dress blues smoking a cigarette. You know, I'm like, oh, this guy looks like a badass. So I go in there and we can start talking and we talk about bonuses. I'm like, what kind of incentives do you guys have? He's like, you know, the bonuses, if you're lucky, you get to be a Marine. And I was like, well, that pitch worked. It got me hook, line, and sinker. And that, that's what I was looking for, right? It wasn't really about what I could get. I didn't know that. It was more subconscious, of course. At 18, you don't know shit. But, um, you know, that that line got me and, and um, yeah, it worked. And then I didn't know what I was going to do, you know, while I was in when, you know, four years from that time, I 
like a lot of people, it's very confusing to go from, and at that time, even more so, I mean, boot camp was, was, uh, very intense. And I went to Paris Island I think people thought, oh, are we going to war? Are they coming here? What's going on? You know, I obviously, I, I went in the day after 9-11 and I ended up going to boot camp uh, early November. Um, so a couple months later, and it was still pretty uh, chaotic at that time. You know, it was like, we'll train as if people are going to come here and we're going to fight here and where are we going to go there? And really hardcore, you know, a few months. Um, and so I... <laughs> immediately I was like, is this something I want to do for longer than four years? I don't know. And then you go to, you know, you go to MOS school and all that. And I think it became pretty clear to me. I got stationed in 29 Palms. Um, and, you know, a place is sort of a hellscape, but a great place to prepare to, you know, go overseas or potentially go overseas. Um, and I, I sort of knew like, you know what, the enlisted, you know, version of this is not for me, if anything, I think being an officer would make a lot more sense. Um, I obviously put together great friendships like you do and stuff, but I knew probably by year three, I wanted to go to college. Like I, I want to I get out, I want to go to school. Um, and so I, I, do you want me to walk you through the whole, that whole journey? Well, no, I mean, not necessarily. I'm, I'm, I, I'm curious. It's an interesting part of the story, I will say. And like what led me to this. Well, yeah, hit me. I've got a thought, but hit me with that. I'll come back. I won't forget. Sure. So. When I got out, I, I, uh, I went to a community college. I got a couple of jobs, you know, to pay for that and stuff. And then, um, you know, there was a professor that I had at the community college, which was like, you know, you should really think about the Ivy League. And I'm like, come on, man. You know, like I'm going to, at best UCLA, you know. Um, but sure enough, like I had heard about this interesting program they had at Columbia. Um, there was only like probably five veteran undergraduates at the, at the program at the time, but I did really well. And I've really, you know, worked hard um, while I was at that community college. And then I got into that, you know, I got into Columbia and then from there it all kind of took off. But go ahead, hit me with what you got. Yeah. So I just, it's interesting. So you were, you were, you said you were singing in a punk band in California pre like pre all this stuff. So, and then you were moving, you moved to New York to pursue punk music. Yes. Then 9-11 happened. So it, it's funny. So um, I so I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in San Diego, splitting time between San Diego and, and, and Columbus, Ohio. My, I have this kind of weird dichotomy where I'm like part Midwestern farm boy and part Southern California surfer dude, like not too much of either one, you know? One parent in both sides? Uh, yeah, my mom. Well, yeah, kind of. My, 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 my parents got divorced in Southern California. I would visit Columbus to my dad's extended side of the family a few times a year as a kid. And then he, when kind of custody and everything got settled when I was 13, going into eighth grade, uh, we moved to Columbus and then I would visit California. So I kind of like did first okay. half was California visiting Ohio. Second half was Ohio visiting California. And then I ultimately enlisted out of Columbus and went to Ohio state and all that stuff. But so I kind of claimed both places, but I've got this, I mean, I, I grew up listening to punk. I love, I mean, I love all kinds of music, but I love, I love punk music. And it's this interesting thing where people have this assumption that punk rockers and punk rock fans are just like a bunch of nihilists that are out there looking for nothing. When in fact, it's actually a way to look for something just like every other art form, just like every other community, just like every other group of people. And you, you, it, it, we all, those of us that are, are fans or, or performers in that kind of arena, and then also served kind of tend to find each other in these really interesting ways. And a lot of other folks don't necessarily understand that like punk is not as chaotic as it, as it looks and feels. And so as you were speaking about your journey and that moment where you're like, I'm hit with this, I have to go do something bigger than myself. Your, the context of you being a, a punk singer, like that just makes total sense to me. Is that something that you've experienced or, or thought much about? Yeah, actually. Um, Cause I, I had several friends in the Marines too, who were, strangely in punk bands like and i was like this is bizarre like what what are the chances but it turns out pretty high <laughs> you know yeah. um yeah it's it, you're, you're right it's not just some sort of nihilistic approach to life right it's 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 usually some sort of misfit kid thing happening where there's there tends to be uh, a, a similar through line and that there's some sort of chaos present in your life right and like you go into punk music to put order into that chaos right yeah um and so yeah i mean I'm still, I was just listening to no effects in the car. I'm, we're talking to fat Mike about potentially doing a podcast together, which to me is 
we've hit it. Like, you know, in my, <laughs> I've, I, I'm married to a celebrity and I've, 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 I have several that are friends and, and been all around that world. Don't really care, you know, but like that to me, <laughs> yeah. apex, you know what I mean? If that happens, apex. but yeah, yeah, no, I've noticed that. And, um, there's sort of, there's sort of a, a, a punk quality to, to the, the Marine way of life, actually, you know, you've got these, it's, just, you know, uncle Sam's most guided children, whatever these little acronyms are, but you notice that it's a lot of people that came from these backgrounds and then, you know, you put them together and that's a pretty fierce group, you know? Um, so I found, yeah, I found it to be very similar. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. There's, uh, um, these dudes I've, I've had them on the podcast. They, they weren't Marines, they're, uh, Rangers, um, but, uh, Brigands Co. And they, they kind of like have, 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 um, have blended those ethos, ethos, ethos together. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and, and I had them on the show and we talked about it and it was like really interesting because there's these just assumptions that people will make outside the military looking in and as well as inside the military looking out, you know, and, and it's just always, it's always fascinating to me, like what brings people to service and then what takes people out of service. And, you know, service is a great foundation for, like you said, entrepreneurial and, and even creative skills and, 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 you know, we could go down a whole rabbit hole about like recruiting and all that stuff, which I don't necessarily want to do. So Columbia um, program with just a few vets. So you're back in New York city. Um, what was that? What was that process like for you? What was that experience like being around? I mean, and you were older, older at this point, right? Cause if you, yeah. yeah. 20, well, 23. Okay. Okay. I'm, tw yeah. I'm 23, but again, like only a handful of that. I mean, I, I only knew one other vet at that time. Um, this program since changed and we can get into that, but I, I went there and I, I felt like I wanted, I needed to divorce myself of my service because I'm at this, you know, liberal in the traditional sense institution where I don't want, I didn't want to be othered, you know, if you will. So I'm like, let me just sort of lean into this academia um, and, and really just embrace you know, uh, being as objectively educated as I can be. And, um, so I didn't really like push me in my service on anyone, you know, at that time. And it was complicated. Like when you get out, as you know, it's, it's, it's really weird. You're trying to find your place in the world. And like, you've got a certain ego about you and you're like, well, with people, people don't understand. And, you know, and you're just coming out of the Iraq war. There's just a lot of confusion societally. And then, you know, you go to a place like that, which is high academic rigor, you know, you're like, well, I want to, I don't, I want to be respected and all this stuff you don't give a shit about as you get older, right? You're just like, who cares? Just go in there and get the education. But you're still in your early twenties and you're still, you're still, even though you've served four years, you're still a kid, like mentally. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, that was an interesting transition. Uh, I, when I first got there, you know, the, the first class I ever had was uh, first classroom I walked into was a university writing class and it's a requirement. There's this core curriculum required at Columbia and they put you with a peer, you know, sort of reviewer. The two of you get together, you critique each other's work, et cetera. And my partner was Hunter S. Thompson's widow. Oh, shit. And so, yeah. So that was my, and I'm a, you know, I'm also a writer. So that was my introduction to high level writing. And I didn't even know until two months into the course, like I didn't put two and two together. And she came in and was handing out gonzo pins. I'm like, what is, and then holy shit, it just kind of, you know, um, it clicked, but it was, Columbia is really neat. Like, like going there right away, it's like, you know, there's so much history there. It was, it was found in 1754 for even a country. Um, but it, it felt similar in so far as like, you know, there's high expectation, high performance required to, to be in the military. Same thing there, just on an academic level and, you know, sleeping in the library at nights and just all that kind of crazy stuff. And then halfway through that new GI bill passed, the post 9-11 GI bill passed and it was going to go into effect a year later. And I'm like, you know what? I should take this year, not rack up more debt. And I should go travel. And I lived in uh, in Europe and traveled Southeast and Central Asia for a year on a shoestring, like really tight budget and taught at a university there, um, supplementary sort of English courses and worked at a pub. And then, you know, again, a backpack through Asia. And when I came back, it went from 
a handful of veterans to like 150 in the undergraduate program. And it was totally different. It's wild. What? Um, yeah. So you really, you got that gonzo, you got that gonzo bug, right? Like, like you, you took it and went and lived it. I love it. Yeah, um, you, you said something actually interesting that I have not thought about this way before until now, which is <clears throat> something that we talk about when we get out of the military and go into use the GI bill to go to college. We talk about like, we're older than all of our contemporaries in class. We're 23 and they're 18 and that's hard. Um, and it is, but the reason it's hard is yes, you're older and you do have a little bit more experience than those 18 year olds, but you are still just a kid. And the experiences that you had in the military, whether it's the Marine Corps, the Air Force, the Coast Guard, whatever, like that infrastructure is in place for you in the military in a very, very seamless way. Your food's paid for, your housing's paid for, your medical is paid for, you're told where to go. It's hard things that you're going to have to do, but you're told where to go. You have the gear, you have the equipment, everything's done for you. And then you get dropped in college where you're older and you had all these experiences, but you don't actually have the context for operating independently within those experiences. And then you're older than these other kids, but you're still a kid. It's like this weird kind of um, yeah. something. Yeah, you're right. It's like a tractor beam. Cause you're like, well, I want to, <laughs> I want to build community here, but these people are like 18, 19. And a lot of them are from a really privileged lifestyle. So there's some resentment because you're young. And again, when you get older, you realize that's all nonsense. But at the time you're, you're trying to make sense of all this. So yeah, you're kind of in a, in a unique position. Uh, I found myself making friends in the artist community. Like I, I wasn't on campus very often, you know, in the first half of my education, I was going downtown a lot, you know, getting to know the boroughs and making friends, doing different stuff. Were you, experiences. were you integrating back into the music community uh, there as well? Not really. I mean, I, I, I met some people who were fringely associated with that you know, and like uh, we're managers at these clubs, you know, these music venues, like La Poisson Rouge and like just different places down there. Like I got to know Whitecliff a little bit. He had a place called La Vagina down there. Um, but like not, not in a way was really like, you know, steep myself into the community in any meaningful, yeah. you know, array or perspective. Um, but when I got back, that's when I, like, I, I started taking uh, film classes. I was a poli sci major at first. I started taking film classes when I got back because I, I realized like, I don't think this is what I want to do. I think I want to be in the arts in some way. Not to mention, I just don't fit into any corporate nine to five political structure. Like it just, my brain does not operate that way. I need to be creating something, right? Or I'm miserable. Um, and so I, I sought that out. And that's when I met my wife, who's an actress, right? Uh, Christy Carlson Romano. Um, and she was like, yeah, you should really like pursue this stuff. You're a good writer. You're good at this stuff. Um, I mean, she's had to say that, right? But, <laughs> yeah. but it's like, okay, all right, let me look more into this. And then at that time there, this is kind of wild. I, there was a program called American corporate partners. Yep. And they, right. You know, ACP. I, okay. Yeah. 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 Yep, I know it. So it was pretty new at that time. Um, and I got to know Sid Goodfriend who, who, who founded it. Um, and they called me up and they were like, Hey, look, we've got a, a corporate mentor. We think it'd be good for you. He's the VP of marketing at JP Morgan Chase. And I was like, that sounds awesome for someone else. <laughs> like, I'm like, look, it's just, and they're like, do you understand how big of a deal this is? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And I'm going to do a huge disservice to you <laughs> and like, yeah. putting that relationship together. Cause I'm just not interested. Um, <laughs> right now, at least. And so they're like, okay, I guess we'll see what we can do. And they called me a week later and they said, what do you think about Rupert Murdoch? And I was like, Rupert Murdoch, like Rupert Murdoch, like CEO of News Corp, like succession. And so, I mean, politics aside, right. It's like, well, the guy is, knows a thing or two about media and about business. Uh, and sure enough, yeah, I had a, a, a personal mentorship with him for a year. And during that time, I really started to understand the difference between the business and the creative side, and then how those two worlds could properly collide. And so he sort of suggested like, I think you should get even more of a, a grasp on the creative aspects, because if you can marry these two worlds, you could be in really good shape. And then we left my wife and I at the 
time, just my girlfriend left. Uh, I graduated, we left Columbia and he gave me a job. I was a producer, a creative producer on the biggest loser, which is that unscripted show. And then I went to AFI to grad school and I got a master's in uh, screenwriting. All right, cool. <clears throat> a lot to unpack there. Fun, fun story about Sid though. So I interviewed with, um, with, uh, American corporate partners. This was before COVID. This was, I guess, like four, four, four and a half years ago, interviewed um, at kind of like every level there. And then I, I met with him a couple of times and I was simultaneously interviewing with an ad agency. And um, you interviewed with him to like work there? Yes. I was in, like interviewing, interviewing for, um, for a marketing role there. Because oh, um, I'd, I'd been freelancing in, you know, at production companies and at ad agencies, and I, similar to you, like I was in this. I I enjoyed marketing and business and commerce, but really much more on the creative side. But I still understood that marrying those two things was important and offered a path that I probably wanted to follow. So I was interviewing with this ad agency, small, small ad agency, and interviewing with ACP at the same time. I met with Sid a couple of times which like, I thought was a great sign. And then we emailed a few times and the last email he sent me was, we've really enjoyed this process. This is not right for you. You have to go find something that's more creative. You have to go find something that's more down the path that, that you want to follow. And then sure enough, I ended up taking that ad agency job, COVID hit, you know, and then, um, you know, kind of things went off from there, but great guy, great organization. Um, and, and, and they really know people and they know how to set people up. Yeah. So, so Sid is sharply intuitive. Like he, I haven't talked to him in years, but, um, he knows, he just knows, you know, and he does not mess around. Like yeah. I remember there was a guy who was a part of the program who showed up to meet with him and he was not in a suit. And this guy was like a combat veteran. Yeah. And Sid just dismantled him. And I was like, whoa, careful, man. You, you Sid are playing with fire just so you know, yeah. but at the same time, he's not wrong. Right. It's like, um, so no, he's a, he's a really, really good person who's done a lot of good for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I'm definitely one of those. Yeah. Same in a small way. So, um, all right. So you got some great advice from, from Murdoch and you took that advice. You still graduated from an Ivy, which is great. And you kind of like set that foundation. And, and then when did you start to become creative again, put pen to paper, start writing? Was it like, were you writing on The Biggest Loser? Not on the show, but like, were you writing while you were there around creative people? Like, when did it really start to form like who you are as a creative entrepreneur? Yeah. So the entrepreneur perspective didn't start for a little while after, but I... I started writing screenplays while I was at The Biggest Loser, while I was working on The Biggest Loser. Um, I, I wasn't really working in a creative capacity. It was a creative producer title, but it wasn't a creative capacity. You're like lining up talent with PR opportunities and stuff like this. I hated it, you know, but it was good for me. I needed to do something like that that I didn't like to know, to lean in further into what I did like. Um, and so I, I was working on a couple of different you know, scripts, um, obviously at the foundation of, of how to do that from Columbia. Also there's like save the cat. There's all those standard books you read. Right. Um, and you know, you go and you write all that bad stuff <laughs> thinking it's great in the beginning and, um, and thinking you might get a movie made. Right. Um, and then after that, I applied to AFI, you know, I was, so that was about a year I was doing that job applied to AFI, got in, and that's when I really started working on my craft. AFI is, I don't know what it's like now, but, you know, 2012, 2014, extremely rigorous. And um, people don't understand about that program is the accountability, like how students, hold, we hold each other to this insane standard, you know, where you have these, uh, these workshops, these narrative workshops where people just go through and slash each other to bits only for the sake of grow, growth, right? You're trying to make each other better filmmakers. And there's a reason why there's a lot of people that come out of that program and do amazing things in film. Um, but it just so happens that that time period is when the industry was starting to shift, you know, and with the, putting a much more emphasis on the digital, you know, new media presence. And I had really started taking an interest in podcasts at that time, um, just like, you know, this, this seems to be a growing medium. It's really interesting. And I, um, I just sort of 
started becoming fascinated with, with how, how it worked uh, and familiarizing myself with the business of it. It was kind of happening in the background. I did go and make a couple of movies. I made one independent sci-fi movie that strangely somehow made its money back. And then, and then I did a movie for Lionsgate. I did like a family-friendly movie that I wrote and produced that my wife directed. Oh, um, cool. And it, it did well, like on demand, just like a straight to VOD thing. And then um, the real transition to podcasting happened uh, kind of during the pandemic. I, I had put together a TV series, an animated TV series that we had been working. I had a writing partner, actually, he's a veteran as well, uh, an army vet. And we put together this animated series and we had the best possible team. We had the animation studio from Rick and Morty. We had the producers from The Office. We had Paul Young from Prince of Potter Young, one of the biggest comedy managers in the game. Um, we had a shit hot script package, everything. The week we were going out to pitch, COVID hit. And we were the, we have been told that we were the first writing team in TV space ever to pitch via Zoom, which is not a good thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no one knew it was going to happen. You know, uh, they're like, can we buy stuff? Can we air stuff? Is everybody going to die? Nobody knew what was going on. Uh, and that's, I was like, well, let's kind of take a look at this podcast thing and like see what it's all about. So um, I, I didn't get a master's in screenwriting, but I got my BFA in, in screenwriting. And I kind of had to be, I had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the more, into the more um, sort of commercial space, for lack of a better word. It's too generic of a term, but like I was one of those very classic film students and especially coming out of the military, I was, you know, like brash and arrogant. I was like, I am going to go, become an indie director. I'm going to direct, write and direct my own indie films. Then I'm going to direct some AAA blockbusters. Then I'm going to come back and direct some indie films again. And then I'm going to do some acting and I'm going to do these things. And like, that was the path. And everybody in my life was like, listen, man, like you've got talent. Like you obviously like you, you can do some of those things, but like having that sort of specific laser focused of a path is, is going to set you up for a failure. And I'm like, ah, you're full of shit. Like I'm, I'm going to do that. I know what I'm going to do. I'm doing I know what I'm going to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I kind of had to be like dragged kicking and screaming into, into this side of the industry, advertising, new media, branded content, branded entertainment, podcast. My one regret is that I didn't start this podcast sooner, you know, cause it's just like, it's something I've grown to like really love. What was that process like for you when you're at AFI? You're surrounded by other amazing artists who are probably going to go off and do some version of what I was just describing, but you started to have an interest in the emerging landscape. Was there any sort of conflict internally for you? And was there any sure. conflict with your peers? Yes. Um, first of all, I very competitive environment and I'm a com competitive person myself, right? Now, now I'm just competitive with myself. But at that time, you know, looking at everybody else, like I'm better than these people, right? which is silly because art is subjective, yep. you know? Um, so I also got encouragement from other people there. Some of them Oscar winners are like, you're a really, really good screenwriter, man. Like, like, you know, you could probably have a serious career doing this. And I was just like you, I'm going to write the next great movie. I was writing all this sort of indie thoughtful, you know, I want to take home my statue <laughs> type yeah. stuff. Uh, and, I don't know. I guess I still had that desire when I graduated and I was leaving. Um, we went back to New York for a year. My wife left early, you know, when she moved out West with me and she needed to finish her degree at Columbia. She kind of bounced back and forth between Columbia a lot. She was on Broadway and she got back to the TV show and then all this stuff. And she's like, I just want to finish this thing. And at the time, while her father was her father was still alive, I made a promise to him, like, we'll make sure she can, I don't want her just following me arbitrarily. Like, we're, we're going to complete this thing. Um, and so we did that. And I was kind of like penning a lot while I was there, you know, but I started to kind of fall out of love with the process of writing because I had gotten this agent, you know, as you know, the process of you get an agent, you think, oh my God, it's going to be amazing. I got an agent. I'm doing great. And then, you know, you go on the water bottle tour and everyone, oh, here you go, you know. Uh, you're meet this guy at the studio and this guy, and this, the truth is like only a certain percentage of things can get made. And they're usually going to get made by people who already have relationships with you, you know, and um, you know, you have to somewhat, you be a little delusional to make it. I will say that you have to believe in yourself in a way that's probably unhealthy in some way. Um, but it came to a point where I was like, well, 
you know, maybe there's something else we can do. And I just really was paying attention to YouTube. I had a friend who was an executive over there who was like really encouraging us to get into that space. Um, and so, you know, while I was working on these scripts, I was, I was giving myself an education on what that world was like, podcasting, YouTube, new media, all this, the branded stuff. And then we went back to California and my wife got contacted by somebody on social media about posting something branded for payment for money. And I'm like, what is this? You know, like you can post something and pay. And then I just went all in on it. I'm like, oh, wow, this makes a ton of sense. This is the future of, of, you know, uh, marketing. This is the future of advertisement. This is this. And then you can be creative and you can create, you know, uh, content in this world that's effective. And we were talking about wanting to have kids soon. I was like, well, this endeavor, who knows when this is going to pay out, you know, and like residuals, hence the strike right now, aren't, aren't crazy on the TV and film side. Like we got to do something here. Um, and I think I'd always had sort of an entrepreneurial spirit or curiosity. And so I was like, I'm just gonna, let's just start doing more in this space. I'm going to start reaching out to people. I'm going to start reaching out to brands. And I built a Rolodex of like 5,000 individuals, like legitimately throughout all of these companies. Um, and just, then I started becoming, uh, you know, uh, more versed in that space. And, um, that led to podcasting. <laughs> yes. I saw the advertisement from, from the YouTube, from the social, which led me to podcasting. Yeah. This reminds me of something that Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs has said <clears throat> ad nauseum over the years, which is don't do what you're passionate about. Go do something and bring your passion with you. Right. And so it's like, if you're passionate about screenwriting and storytelling, but you obviously, you also have the, um, the, the, the lens of understanding that it's going to be a more competitive environment, really like go, don't put yourself in a position to compete with more people, put yourself in a position to compete with less people. Right. Like that's just right. a, a time. Open a sushi bar in Okinawa. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> that's, like, it's exactly don't, right. Don't and so that, you, though. you kind of saw this, you saw this in and this opportunity and you're like, all right, I'm going to bring my passion with me. I'm going to go build a network of relationships because, and I'm, I don't want to speak for you. So like, tell me if I'm on target here or not, but it you're seems to me it. like you're, you're like, I'm going to build a network of relationships with people. I don't exactly know where this is going to go, but I do know that the relationships I have with these people are going to light that path for me and are going to show me where I can take those relationships and, and move on some of them to, to build some more branded entertainment. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, and, and then we ha when we had our daughter, as I'm sure you know, being a father, something happens to you. Uh, or, and if it doesn't, you need to take a look in the mirror, right? <laughs> yeah. so, something happens to you where you feel this innate instinct to provide. And if you, ha you are an entrepreneur, that spirit exists within you, that thing, a fire is, you know, awakens in you. And um, for me, it's like, I am going to do something here like this. It's new, and I think that I have a unique offering, you know, and I have that passion for doing things well, you know, artistically. Uh, and I mean, it I put one deal together and my whole life changed. I went from, yeah, I became, we became millionaires, like not far, not long after that, right? Yeah. Um, and it's... I, I, I don't mean that in a braggadocious way, but like in a way that's like, you know, if you can, if you can, I, I really like what you just said there. What's his name? Mike Rowe? Mike Rowe. Yeah. Yeah. Bring that passion with you. And it's a great way to look at it. It's like, well, if you're just, you're passionate about something, but it's not working, you know, and you're just driving yourself crazy. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. You know, uh, that road, that long and windy road can lead to really interesting places. I love what I do more now, and we'll get into the nuances of exactly what we do. Yeah, way more than I liked filmmaking. Matter of fact, Christy and I will get opportunities to become produce movies or be a part of things, and we turn them down all yeah. the time. It's like I don't want to be on set for freaking twenty eight days. Like yeah. you know what I mean? Like yeah. I I no longer have the same love for that. I enjoy what I do now more. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel the same way. I, I was I was dragged kicking and screaming into this, but now I just I was recording an episode two days ago, and like now I'm experiencing it in the middle of this. I'm like, oh, I, I I love this. This is what I love doing. Like this is what I want to do. 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to scale this. Like, you know, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And, and meeting people that are great and are like-minded yeah. and are, it's yeah. awesome. It's just, it's the best. Um, and, and, and not to belabor the point, but if you have a bunch of passion and it doesn't have anywhere to go, it'll, it'll invert in on itself. And that, that's when the disaster strikes for people personally. Whereas if you have a path, even if it's not one that you, I was actually texting with a friend this morning, she was laid off a, a few months ago and she was telling me about some jobs that she's interviewing for right now. And she's like, I don't really like love the job, but it's an opportunity and I can go do work. I'm like, yes, exactly. Go do that work. If that job doesn't last, that's fine. But you're moving forward instead of just like looking inward and just kind of wondering where you're going to send stuff. So well, I was going to say one thing real quick to that. I heard Rick Rubin, the producer, music producer yeah. say something about this where it's like, look, you don't necessarily have to be even passionate about the work you do. You can like be passionate about many other things aside from that work. Go make money and and have less stress financially and then go pursue that other thing as well like yeah. you, you can do it all i mean the dream is to do it as, as you know for it to be the work sure. but you can get there yeah you know you just have to be a little bit flexible in your understanding of of how these things work and how they fit together and you know look lay the lay the kind of market flat and understand you know like you know i don't want to minimize the the loss of life during covid and people that did experience bad things happen to them, you know, personally, health-wise, professionally, whatever it is, but it really has democratized our ability to work, whether it's our vocation or whether it's our avocation, like Ruben's talking about, like, all you have to do is just kind of step back, widen your frame a little bit and understand how all these different pieces can fit together and understand that you have the agency to move these pieces on this chessboard. That's actually probably a little bit more like checkers. You, you want to think it's like chess because you want to make it harder on yourself, but actually treat it a little bit like checkers. It's not and that hard. No, not, right, right, exactly. Yeah, you don't yeah. get overcomplicated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, that's the one thing I will say. Uh, uh, one more little thing is this, that that is the one thing about the promise of the premise of America that still exists. It's like I grew up in the beginning of my life very poor, um, and my my parents kind of sort of became lower middle class and worked their way up and really became middle class once I was already out of the house. But I I watched that happen, and I. I, I see it still happen today. I hear stories today about how here you, there's just, if you have the hustle and you've got the spirit, you can come from nothing and make it, you know, um, yeah. and it's awesome. And I uh, completely agree, co-sign on that. And the other thing I think that goes unsaid that should be said more often is that you actually have the opportunity to define what success looks like for yourself. Don't let what you see on Instagram or television or whatever, define your success. Like you're just going to chase something that isn't yours. Whereas if you do what Rick Rubin says, which is, okay, I'm going to make money doing this other job, but then I get to be successful being artistic or being entrepreneurial in these other areas, even if they don't scale and ultimately make money and that's successful to you, that's fantastic. And this is the best place in the world to do that. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. So Podco, how was it? How was it born? Like, what was the, what was the, um, it feels to me like you all have led the charge on this yeah. kind of nostalgia. Like you, you're the impetus for, for the rest of the trend, right? We're the, we're the peeps. We're the ones. Yeah. 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 Um, so here's how it all started in, in 2019, early 2019, uh, all of Christy and I's best ideas come from being in a hot tub. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're in our home back in SoCal time. We live in Austin now. Um, and you know, that friend of ours from YouTube had reached out again and they're like, you really guys, you should start a YouTube channel. I'm like, I'm trying to figure out how I can make elevated content on this platform. I'm not interested in vlogging family stuff. It's just not my thing. Like, you know, I lost some of the pretentiousness from Colombian AMI, right, right, right. but yeah. not all of it, right? Like I, I can't yeah. make- you, you lost the right amount of it. The right, the right yeah. balance, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm like, what can we do that's fun, that's, you know, sort of a replicable format that people will really like and da, 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 you know? And I'm like, Christy, people don't know about your unbelievable ability to both cook and host, but also your family's backstory in which, her family had a bakery in Connecticut and it was very successful. It was called Mama Romano's and Six Sons. And, and they, although it's a bakery, they had a sauce recipe and they sold that sauce recipe to Prego. And so they would bake these wedding cakes and make food for these like 
really, you know, affluent families in Connecticut. And it went under eventually because it was poorly managed, but she kind of inherited this ability to cook and host and do all this stuff. And I kind of grew up cooking and my, my mom's an amazing cook and we both just love food to this day. We're huge foodies. It's one of the reasons we live in Austin. We actually are in development for, for a show, a cooking show that may, may end up going to. Um, but we, we created this format that married cooking and nostalgia. I was like, well, we have this Rolodex of people and they're just kind of sitting back, hoping the residual checks come. And everybody that grew up with these folks from the late nineties and aughts are wondering what they're up to. And as you know, I kind of ha had this theory that nostalgia was only going to get more powerful. And I had pushback from friends on this, by the way, and I just wouldn't, I wasn't buying into it. I was like, look, I think the more content that comes our way, the more we're going to lean into the stuff that we grew up with and love. I'm like using my grandmother as a test case. It's like, why is she in her seventies, but still really only wanted to watch I Love Lucy, right? Because that was powerful to her and meaningful to her as she was growing up. And so, you know, why am I watching Parks and Rec, The Office, Seinfeld, you know, on repeat? Because those things are special to me, especially Seinfeld. So I think we should dig up this Rolodex, bring these people on. And what we'll do is we'll cook dishes inspired by the shows they were in and their characters, reintroduce them through this platform and like see how it goes. And it just skyrocketed. And um, we, from there, got a cooking show on Hulu together. It was the first short form show that Fox and Hulu had ever done. And it was pandemic themed called Bucket List Bistro. And then we took the channel, we morphed it into kind of a, uh, what life is like growing up as a kid actor in Hollywood, right? For Christy, that thing went crazy. And, and that was a natural path to, it, to a podcast. So what if we took this walk and talk sort of, you know, 10 minute podcast thing you're doing, video podcast thing you're doing, and it's to make an actual podcast. We'll take the idea of the nostalgia, the cooking, the, not the cooking show, but the nostalgia, the you telling people what it's like to grow up like this from a place of vulnerability and accountability, which I think is great for young people to see older people take accountability um, and not just hear about the successful times, but the struggles with at the same time, not being the victim constantly, and then use that as an interview format. And so we had her show vulnerable. Um, her, it's just, she's still doing her podcast. She's about to have her hundredth episode um, go. And then we had another show that I developed with my friend, Will Friedle, and he, um, he was in Boy Meets World. He was Eric Matthews in Boy Meets World, and he was Ron Stoppable and Kim Possible with Christy. And we we built an animation-focused podcast called I Hear Voices. One of them we sold to Acast. The other one we sold to iHeart. And um, we noticed that both of those companies were only putting a focus on the audio, not putting any time into the branding, and... Meanwhile, I'm doing brand branded content and brand deals, not just for Christy, but for other friends that are, you know, celebs or celeb adjacent this whole time. And I really am building a framework for what works, what goes viral, what, what resonates with people, what helps convert, you know, how do you provide value to a brand and how they give it back to you, all this kind of stuff and, you know, develop that relationship with your audience, et cetera. And so I noticed they just weren't doing that. They weren't printing a focus on the social side, the visibility side. You know, and I'm like, you know, I think I can do this better than they do, you know, and, and not and not can not even from a competitive standpoint, more of like, I think we can provide something that's that's just doesn't exist quite like I envision it you yeah. know, at this time. Like, like, like this is a good template, but there's a better way and we can we can make right. it more efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So let's dig back into this Rolodex. Right. People are liking these series rewatch podcasts and stuff like what Sonny's doing and all these other people are doing. And like, why don't we. Um, do the same thing idea that we had for the cooking show, but let's just make it a series rewatches, bringing these personalities out, capitalizing on the fan bases that already exist, you know, and, and then using them to springboard these podcasts to success immediately, but be video focused. Let's, let's get a studio. We built a somewhat proprietary system where We've got magnetized set walls that we just pop in and out. And every show has different looks and our studios out in LA. Um, we live in Austin, but yeah, we fly out there when we need to, but all our team is there. They're, they're sort of spread out, but our main production team is there. Like, let's do this. Let's batch shoot these. We'll get them in groups of three months. 
It'll be easy for everyone. Let's have a very low lift and let's see how it does. And again, be video and social media forward and focus so that by the time you actually launch, you've got enough content on there. You're exciting people. You're tapping back into the things that they grew up with and they like. And um, so we did that. And our show, Wizards of Waverly Pod, which is a Wizards of Waverly Place rewatch, went well. Selena Gomez posted about us on her Instagram static and, and, and uh, you know, stories. And she's the most followed woman in the world. And then Podco, boom, right? Now we've got a ton in development. We've, we've paused a few series because of the strike, but they're going to be coming back once that, you know, um, is all said and done. And uh, we've got many, many shows in development. We've got now a great ad partner that we're working with. And we do some internal sales here too. But yeah, nostalgia is sort of the, you know, what the focus was because it has a very long tail. And then we were now getting into other categories too. We got some really fun stuff that I think is going to do really well coming up. Yeah, it's great because it's like, um, man, it's like do, uh, stuff leads to more stuff, right? It's like do the thing that's right in front of you. Do the, take the step, take the next step. And then the next steps will will kind of emerge from that. And not in like a woo way, but in like very much like a, you need to take step one so that you can assess and observe and then choose your direction and, and keep like kind of going there. The first one that you, the first show that you produced, was that fully independent, self-funded, self-produced? 100%. Yeah. We took, we took money we made from brand deals, which could be very lucrative, you know, and, and rather than dump them into, you know, different investment vehicles, we put it back into production, into our own stuff, our own business. Yeah. You know, and obviously many lessons along, along the way, we'll call failures lessons here, right? But like, you know, a lot of, you just learn a lot of what, what, what works, what doesn't, what formats work, what don't. I love that you just said, it's, it's just about steps, right? It's like, you're going to, this is going to take you different ways. And then it's going to, uh, it'll present itself. It's like they say about when you're writing a screenplay, it's like, don't think about the theme. It will present itself to you. Yeah. You know, same type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. The, cause I think what happens pe people, you know, folks in general and, and specifically, Folks in this audience, we put our um, uh, we put our goals on a pedestal, and we don't realize that it's better to build systems to achieve milestones that you're not actually aware of yet. And I mean, credit again, po politics aside, Scott Adams. I'm not sure if you know who he is, but he's written written a few books. Um, he he got famous during the Trump years, not necessarily as a Trump apologist, but as somebody who like who who um, uh, translated Trump speak for people and caught a lot of flack for it. But he's the guy who he built Dilbert, uh, the cartoon oh, Dilbert. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so he's written a couple of uh, I guess they could be like self help or like marketing books or whatever. But he has this big thing where he says, "Don't have goals, build systems." Because if you build a system, then the milestones will emerge from that system. And again, it's not woo, like people listening, like, well, it's not just going to appear out of nowhere. No, it's not appearing out of nowhere. It's appearing out of the thing that you're building as you go. But the only way to build as you go is to go is to take a step is to do one, one step of that process. And then if you're observant and aware, those things will emerge, and then you can either seize them or not. You know, like like you said, like I'm not going to dispense with this idea that other people are telling me to dispense with because I know it's a good idea. So I'm going to keep working towards it. Right, and it's not to spite them. It's just that you're you have to trust your instincts in some way, and yeah. then pivot obviously if it's not. But like, you know, you you I, I agree with this. You build that system, you refine that system. Right, there's gonna be hiccups along the way. You're gonna find that, you know. Uh, you know, the hiring process, the firing process, all this kind of stuff, what you do with employees, like that, that stuff, you can only learn by working it out. You, yeah. know, you can start to spot, you know, okay, this person cares, they're going to put in the right, you know, amount of effort, you start to understand how to incentivize folks better, help them believe in the product system you're building. Um, but I, yeah, I think that's salient. I mean, yeah, build, build so, a strong system. Yeah. So how do you approach development now? So you know, uh, or I, I guess I shouldn't say it that way. I'm, I'm assuming not everything is going to get made, right? Like you all have, you have ideas, you have ideas for shows, you put some shows in development. How do you approach the whole platform that you've built and 
you know, not necessarily get emotionally attached to one idea, or maybe you do, and then sometimes it doesn't work out. Like, how do you approach this building process now that you're a few years into it and you've seen success? How do you, how do you look at that and map that out for yourselves? How do you forecast? There are tiers. Yeah, there are tiers, right? It's what's one is what, what is something we think is an easy layup and an immediate moneymaker and how fast can we make it profitable? And what would what do we think those margins will be? And that typically comes from, if it's a rewatch, it's like, what was the, you know, we'd do some market research. What was, what, were, what was the average viewership of that show? How many hashtags are we seeing on TikTok? You know, how, how often does it trend? What's the followership of those hosts and how does that audience interact? And, you know, uh, do they convert things like that? So we'll do a couple shows like that. Um, then we'll do things that, you know, are maybe more middle of the road that th we think will grow over time and have longer legs. And then we do things that are risky, but that we really like, you know, and think are fun and, and are more of like kind of a shot in the dark, but aren't super expensive to make and could end up being huge. And so we look at that and sort of batches of five now is how we're doing it. It's we're in development for five things. We launch five things at once. We look at how that will uh, perform over a quarter. And then we build into these contracts that if they don't hit, you know, if the, you know, if, if these, if these don't perform at a level of expectation that we agree to, we can them, you know, and then we not, might not can all five, but doing yeah. it this way is saves money on production design, saves money on, you know, um, just uh, crew and just all kinds of elements that editing and stuff. And um, so we'll make temporary hires for that time period. And then whatever stays, some of those hires will become more semi-permanent or permanent. And, and uh, we try to put sponsorships or partnerships together for these things before now they go live. And now our ad partner can't do that because they need to sell off performance and data, but I can go sell a celebrity. You know, it's, it's easier to sell a celebrity than it is to sell an influencer because that influencer could become irrelevant tomorrow. You know, and again, that's the power of nostalgia. So we'll try to put together some sort of sponsorship that'll cover cost. But now again, and this is just, you know, what you learn over time, when you first start, you're going to give a lot more than you want to away, right? Because it's like, I just need to get this off the ground. So I'm going to, this might not be the best deal for me, but it'll get me in the press and it'll get things moving. And then now, now we do things differently. We got to recoup before anybody gets paid. You know, there's a certain, you know, way we do our splits, you know, I mean, we still handle all the production and, and, and distribution, um, but things just look a little differently. Yeah. Than used to. Um, yeah, that's kind of how we approach it. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting. I, it's an inter, It's an important thing I think for people in the audience to hear is that you obviously like you want to know your value, know your worth. But as you're getting started with something, you you are going to have to take a cut for an opportunity or give some things away for that opportunity. I'm in that position right now. I've got a couple of brands that I'm talking to. Where I'm just like. Yeah, I mean, I, I know in the back of my head that I'm going to say yes to whatever the number is because it's going to add that credibility and it's not a brand that I'm necessarily going to grow long-term with anyway. So I've kind of assessed that risk as I look forward and kind of like forecast. And then even if it is, like I just, I know there's going to be a, I learned this with ad agencies where it's like, if you're an ad agency working with like a startup challenger brand, you know, who's doing like whatever, 5 million in revenue, like they're not going to have big budgets for you. And so you do the first couple of campaigns at, at a budget. And then when they move into that next revenue tier, they're not moving you with them. They're moving on to the ad agencies that are, that are working in that tier at that kind of like next revenue range. And so I learned that lesson working in advertising. Where I'm like, oh, okay, that's actually just how this works. So these initial kind of like brand deals or partnerships or sponsorships or whatever content that I want to create for this brand, whoever I associate with first, I'm probably not going to stay with them long-term. That's just how it works. So I need to be thinking in the same kind of tiers that, that you're talking about, obviously at a very smaller scale, but. But no, yeah, that's the way to do it. What's, um, what's been the most uh, exciting and kind of fulfilling aspect of this for you? Yesterday, I got a call from Dave Coulier from, um, you know, Full House. And he, he was just like sort of commending our approach to this. And we've had to pause the show because of the strike, but we've made in touch. And there's a certain work ethic, you know, that, that I have maybe coming from the military. And a lot of people say they're not into the Hollywood shit or they're not bullshit, but I truly don't care for it. And I've, I've had a lot of the talent come to me 
and say, and, you know, host, and I'm just calling talent, but, and say how refreshing it is to work with somebody who's just gives a shit. Hmm. Right. For me, that's been very fulfilling because I pride myself on that. And I, I don't think it's something that I think about consciously, but one of the reasons I left LA is because that place lacks community. Right. I think it's a byproduct of the culture of the business that you become egocentric because you've been rejected for so long. When you finally make something of yourself, you think you're special. Right. And it's not any person's fault. But, you know, I think it's poisonous for your well being and your happiness. And community is, is, in my opinion, extremely important. I think we've built that within our company. And if people don't fit into that community, we're going to let you go. That's part of what's going to happen. We're not going to keep your show around because I have to enjoy working with you and you have to enjoy working with me. So the thing that make, yeah, that's probably one of the things that's made me happiest is, is we've got this awesome sort of community we built and these people aren't just hosts, but we're also close, you know, and we care about the success of everyone shows within our ecosystem. That's, um, that's incredible. It's you and I were talking about our, our kids before we, uh, before we logged on and, we, you just said something that made me think of this. Uh, you know, our daughter's going through a phase right now that's behaviorally, she's she's being challenging and she's kind of being challenged a little bit, but she's working so hard. And my wife said something that you just said earlier. She's, I was like texting her last week while she was out of town. I'm like, I'm just so proud of Isla for working hard at these things that we're asking her to work hard at. And she said, yeah, her give a shit meter is extremely high. And like, that is just such, and my wife and I, we have a saying around our house where we just, we, we do good people shit. And if, if you don't do good people shit and you're not reciprocal, you're out. Yep. No worries. Live your life, do your thing. But we give a shit around here. We do good people shit. And if you fit into that, you're a part of the community. And if you don't, you're not. Yeah. Um, again, look, we have a finite amount of time in, in this world. You know, I'm, I try to be a, uh, you know, a, a steadfast, uh, stoic, yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, if, if, if we, we know, we know we're going to die. Right. So you should try and live a decent life. I'm yeah. not saying be some like purist right. or, or zealot, but like try your best not to be an a-hole. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, if you are an a-hole, I'm not going to work with you. I don't give a shit who you are. And I've had, I'm not going to divulge names, but I've had massive talent come and try to do shows with us and find in the process of chatting about the show that they're going to be a pain and it's not even their fault. Again, it's a byproduct of the system. And I've just been like, it's not going to work. Yeah. And some people probably think that's crazy, but I know I'm going to go to bed at night anxious and I'm not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I've done four years in the Marines. Like, well, I don't need to do that. My first, my, my, first few, my first few sets uh, out of film school, out of the military and all that stuff, working on some like branded entertainment things. I've, had difficult conversations with celebrity talent before. And I'm like, no, we're not doing that on this set. Don't treat that person this way. And all the other industry vets, you know, are looking at me like, wait, did you just say that? I'm like, yeah, dude, I went to Afghanistan twice. I'm not doing this job uh, because I have to, I'm doing it because I want to. And it's a privilege to be able to work in this capacity and everybody's going to act that way or we're not working together. Like that's just how this works. We're making a movie. We're making a show. We're making a podcast. It's not that serious. Enjoy it. You know, I mean, some of these conversations are very important. Don't get me wrong, but like, sure. just check your ego at the door. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to respect your time and wrap things up here. Um, I've got one open-ended question to ask, but before then, where do you want to drive traffic? Where can folks find you if they want to on social uh, or Podco and, and all that stuff? Check out you- Podco. I mean, I'm on, I'm on Instagram, the Brendan Rooney. I don't really care too much about that, but you know, you can check out uh, the Podco's Instagram page or website uh podco.us and then all our shows are you just you google podco you'll find them we got some awesome stuff coming go ahead subscribe to the youtube channels of those and listen um but you know and then yeah i'm I, i'd love to hear what people would like to see or or, or listen to maybe there may be things that we've missed and i think there's no better place to pull in the audience and i'd, I'd love to hear what, what they want i mean i'm interested in getting into the vet space in some way too you know who knows yeah yeah, well, we'll definitely we'll link all that stuff out and, and let's let's keep that that end of the conversation going. I've been ending the each episode with an open ended question. Um, what's on your heart and your mind for for our community, for the veteran community right now, whether it's a piece of advice, something you just want to get off your chest or something you want to reiterate from today? What's on your heart? What's on your mind? 
Yeah, I mean, I here's what I'd say. I think getting out is really tough, right? But I think there are there is a community of 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 us out there, and I'll always make myself available to people that are interested in the arts, especially or even entrepreneurship, but more so uh, uh, entrepreneurship in the arts. Um, but I I am uh, I feel confident, sort of, about the state of where things are are headed for vets. I mean, we've got you know. When I was there before, there was no, there was the pre 9-11 GI Bill or whatever, and, and I have access to that. And I think, you know, there's, there's support systems out there. And I encourage, I would say this, I encourage vets that are interested in the arts to just do it. And, but just know that as you do it, it's not like, it's not going to happen exactly how you plan or how you want it. Like we both were just saying, there's a path that will eventually, you know, uh, illuminate that that will be, I'm sure, beautiful, right? But, you know, just go get after it. You know, like, I don't don't feel anything's owed to you because you were a vet. Use that to, like, outwork everyone. The work is more important than the talent. And if you have both, hallelujah, you know? Well said. Well said. Appreciate you. Appreciate your time. Appreciate what y'all are doing. Uh, and enjoy and following along and, and listening and catching all the content. And um, let's do this again sometime. Yeah, man. Sounds good. All right, brother. All right, man. Take it easy.